forgot to start the, the recorder. So therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So what is reconciled? The Merriam-Webster Dictionary has several definitions, but the one that most closely aligns with our message this morning is to restore friendship or harmony. Believers of the gospel know that this harmony with God was destroyed in the fall. But because of his great mercy and love for us, the elect, he and the council halls of eternity purposed and provided for us a way back to that harmony and a restored perfect fellowship with him. That is what we will be looking at today. I have titled this morning's message, The Way to Reconciliation. In verse 17, it speaks of believers being a new creation in Christ. In verse 18, it declares that we are reconciled to God in Christ. Verse 19, God is reconciling the world to him in Christ. And then in verse 21, God made him Christ to be sin for us, a sin offering for us, and through that offering, we are made the righteousness of God in Christ. So we've been going deeper into each of these as we work our way through our text this morning, but the outline for the message is very clearly laid out. For us, it is in Christ, through Christ, and Christ alone that all these sayings are accomplished. Today, as we look at reconciliation to God, made necessary as a result of the fall where mankind lost the sweet fellowship with God that Adam had enjoyed, that harmony, all lost, and in its place, a complete separation from God was brought, and with that, the ushering in of sin and death. But what we will see is that in Christ, we have that fellowship with God restored, and it is by him alone that this miracle of grace of grace is brought about. It is not Christ and our works plus any kind of free will. It's not Christ plus our parents' desire for us. It's not Christ plus the family we were born into. It's not Christ plus our church attendance, our baptism, a sinner's prayer, or raising of a hand. It is in Christ alone that our communion with God will be restored. I went to a Republican debate here a few months ago, and three of the four candidates that were vying for the opportunity to be our district representative in the U.S. Congress was there. They were asked a question about their faith and how that faith would affect the way they would govern if elected to Congress. Well, two of the three candidates declared they had always been Christians, as one had been born into a devout Christian family and one a devout Catholic family, and each had grown up attending church every Sunday. 
and that faith they grew up with remained as the basis, the foundation for all their major decisions. The third candidate has a slightly different story in that she became a Christian at the age of five while her grandma was reading her some children's Bible stories. She decided then and there she wanted Jesus to come into her heart and has always tried to please him in everything she does. Like the others, her lifelong faith in Jesus will dictate her decisions while in Congress. Well, those are all fine stories, all well and good, heart-tugging stories, but the conclusions just aren't possible. I have heard a story a few times about a preacher who, after services one Sunday, was having a discussion with a nice little elderly lady. He asked how long she had been a Christian, and her answer was, well, all my life. His reply to her was, that's just too long. In other words, that's just not possible. Let's look at what our text says about this and the other things that we brought up or mentioned at the start of our message. So back to verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So here Paul is laying out a pattern, one that all believers will experience. There must be a passing from the old man, fallen in Adam, dead in sin, at enmity against God, vowing to never let this man rule over him, then passing on to the new man, the new creation, no longer at enmity with God, but rather at peace with him, and now a willing servant and a happy debtor to God's glorious grace. To explore this just a little bit farther, let's look at what Paul has to say in Ephesians chapter 2. So in Ephesians 2, I'll start reading here in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we are dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So this reading lays out a pretty clear path as to how God brings his people to himself. Sinners from birth, dead in our sins, followers of the ruler of the air. And in verse 3, Paul tells us, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the desires of our flesh. It's not some of us, not most of us, but all of us. No one is free of this. Why? Because we were born sinners. 
We didn't become sinners by committing that first sin. We sinned because we were sinners by nature, by birth, all a result of Adam's fall in the garden. Since then, all this sin falls short of the glory of God. Sin and fall short of the glory of God. But all believers will share the experience that read about in verses 4 and 5 of Ephesians. Because of God's great love for us, in order to display His great mercy to us, He made us alive in Christ Jesus, even though we were dead in our transgressions. Remember that list of things that I referred to just a bit ago, beginning with being Christians from birth, then on to us, not Christ plus our works or our family heritage, and so on. All of those arguments that someone will want to use to add to their works to what Christ has done, well, each of those arguments are disposed of right here. Because it is not works that brings life, we are made alive in Christ. And in verses 8 and 9, Paul expands on this, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It is by God's free, sovereign grace that we are saved. Don't, by, don't boast by adding your works to it, because God has never been pleased with man's work. In Romans 5, Paul tells us, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave us a new life, and the result, we have passed from the old man to the new man, from dead in sin to alive in Christ. And a quick look at verse 6 reveals to us another glorious truth. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that is reconciliation. That is a glorious truth. Communion with God has been restored, so much so that God raised us up with whom? Christ, and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We are one with Him, and through Him, one with God, all because of God's great love and mercy for us. So going back to verse 17... In our, in our text, we remember similar, similar language found in Jeremiah 31 and also Hebrews 8. They speak to the passing away of the old covenant, the covenant of the law of sin and death, and then entering the new covenant, the covenant of freedom from the law, replaced with freedom and grace, life, and that glorious rest in Christ. In that same manner, we will pass from the old man and on to the new man, that new creation in Christ, from the darkness of the old way to the light of the new. Have you ever wondered how a newborn baby feels, what it senses as it passes from the mother's womb into the bright lights of a delivery room? Hearing all that noise, all that motion going on, can or does the baby feel uncertainty, fear, wonder, but then does the baby feel comfort when the mother hugs it to her breast for the first time? And, how, and when the dad holds that baby in his hands for the very first time? When the baby hears the familiar sounds of whom? Of mom and dad's voices. We know that babies soon do begin to recognize and appreciate all those things. Chris and I have a new grandson. His name is Blake. And it's pretty clear that little guy loves his life. Anna sends us pictures and videos all the time. 
and he is so full of laughter and giggles and love for his mama and her attention. He's always jumping up and down, excited to see her, excited to be with her, reaching out for and loving that attention that he gets. And he continually wants more. Well, isn't that similar to our experience when we pass from the old man to the new man, enjoying all that we gained in that new birth, that new birth that Christ tells Nicodemus about when he says, paraphrasing here, in order to enter the kingdom of God, we must be born again. Then, when we find ourselves standing in that glorious light of the kingdom of God, where, while standing in that light, we can look back at the darkness we have been delivered from. Just as Ezekiel 36 tells us, only after God has worked his marvelous acts of grace upon us, only then can we look back and see our evil ways and wicked deeds. We then find ourselves asking, did he really... Because of his eternal love for me, did he really redeem me? Can it be that I should gain? Did he really deliver me from that hopeless pit, that world of darkness, that valley of dry bones? Well, tell me more. Me, I'm like Blake. I want more. I love to hear that old, old story about how a Savior come from glory how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. Yes, that story of being born again, of being accepted in the beloved, has that really happened to me? Well, thanks be to God, if you are a child of his, a believer in that old story, it did. And we get to hear more of that old, old story as we go on to verses 18 through 20. Here, Paul speaks of his God-given ministry of reconciliation. And what is that ministry? The preaching of the gospel, the good news. Scripture gives us a pretty good look into Paul's life, his ministry, and from that we know Paul was a faithful preacher of the good news. Wherever God sent him and whatever his circumstances, so much so you can say his ministry goes on even to this day. He proclaimed that this is how God's people will hear the message. In Romans 10, he says this, How then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is why the church is so important. This is where people come and we gather, come to hear the good news. It's where people learn about all God has done for us, what he has prepared for each of us to do, and some are even called to become preachers of the gospel. And that is why preachers are so important. They get the message of Christ out to the world. God continues his work from there, but he has purposed that all must first hear the message. So it follows there must be someone to preach to them. Beautiful are the feet that will bring the good news. Enter Paul, who is imploring that people hear his message, not for his glory, but for the sake and glory of Christ. This is what God has called him to do, bring the message of God's reconciliation to the world, not to this little spot on a map called Israel, 
but in all four corners of this round globe, there are sheep waiting to hear the message. And one thing we know is that we know not who the elect are. So preach as if you are a dying man preaching to dying men. Implore them to hear the gospel message because their life depends on it. And that explains Paul's passion here. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. They must hear the message, the good news. And who will hear? Who will believe that good news? Acts 13.48 is one of many verses that answers the question. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. God's message will not go out in vain. And as Christ says in the book of John, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. For those who don't believe, who those who can't hear the message, not given the ear to hear, well, it's all foolishness to them. But for those that truly understand the sovereignty in salvation, the sovereignty of God in salvation, in election and predestination, What Paul has to say about this in Romans 8 really strikes at the heart. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, and those he predestined, he also called, Those he calls, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Those he predestined, he called, and called according to his purpose. They heard because of the beautiful feet bringing the gospel message to all that love him. And the message was heard and believed. And the same happens today until the last of God's sheep are called home. God's message will go out. Paul's message will be repeated, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then as we go on to verse 21, the heart of this message, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So much is said in this verse. The event at the cross was the vindication of God against sin against death, against the enemies of the church. Finally, that perfect sacrifice that God required for the redemption of his people was here. The day of salvation was at hand. He who had no sin, God put upon him our sin. The wages of sin is death. He's died suffering that death for us because all of our deaths combined could not satisfy that debt could not muster up the total of wages needed to pay that debt. So where was our hope? Who could deliver us from this body of death? It could only be him. Him who had no sin. Him who suffered no guilt. He took our sin and our guilt upon himself, and he died. Not for any sin he had committed, for he had none. But ours, it was our sin us that put him on the cross it was our debt he was paying in John chapter 10 he proclaims that he would lay down his life for the sheep he was the lamb of God that 
perfect sacrifice. Let's look at the story as Isaiah tells it. So let's go to Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, I'm going to pick up reading in verse 4. Isaiah 53, verse 4, and I'll read through verse 11. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet he considered we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of the light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. So there is so much in Isaiah 53 that it's several sermons all by itself. But just for our purposes, can you see the theme here, the gospel message? And if you will, that old, old story, it is his life for ours, our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Lord makes his life an offering for sin, and by that, by his wounds, we are healed. Yes, even Isaiah preached the gospel way back then, the gospel of separation, substitution, and reconciliation. It truly is the old, old story. As we continue looking at verse 21, it's also important to look at how Christ's obedience to the Father plays a role in our reconciliation to God. Philippians 2 speaks of the of this speaks to us of that perfect obedience of the Son to the Father. I've copied the passage here into my notes so I can read it to you, but if you want to follow along, we'll be in Philippians chapter 2, two verses 5 through 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So once again, we see where he left his place in glory, making himself nothing a servant, being made in human likeness, and then being obedient even unto death. But it was because of that perfect obedience he could be that perfect sacrifice. But why would he do such a thing? In Hebrews 12, we are told to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So for the joy set before him, through obedience to the Father even unto death, and then being raised to the heavens, and now sitting at the right hand of the Father, advocating for all the Father had given him, all he had sacrificed, he was satisfied. And looking back again at Isaiah 53, verse 11, it tells us that after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. He was satisfied. The Father was satisfied. God's purpose was complete in him, and that brought joy to all of the Godhead. So as we continue to look at Christ as the perfect Lamb, and the only one acceptable to the God the Father as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin, for our reconciliation to God, I would like to make a mention of the story of Abraham and Isaac. Throughout the Old Testament, we are given pictures of Christ in lambs found acceptable for sacrifice as burnt offerings for the sins of Israel, lambs without spot or blemish. The story of Abraham and Isaac is one of the more familiar Old Testament pictures of Christ and his role as a substitute set by God. We know how the story goes as Abraham received instruction from God to take Isaac up onto a mountain and sacrifice his one and only son. And Abraham, by faith, obediently took Isaac up to the mountain, believing God could resurrect Isaac from the dead. As we are told by the writer of Hebrews, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So in that faith, they went up to the mountain, and on the way up, Isaac asked Abraham, Father, we have the wood and the fire, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham replied, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Well, we know that God did provide himself that perfect, sinless, without spot or blemished lamb, one without violence, without deceit in his mouth. Not only in that ram caught by his horns in the thicket that God provided Abraham as a substitute for Isaac, but he provided himself in the person of his one and only begotten son, that perfect substitute for his church, the elect of God. 
Years later, John the Baptist would be heard to proclaim as he saw Jesus off in the distance, Behold, the Lamb of God. And we know from the Gospel story that this truly was the Lamb of God, the Son of God, who had left his place in glory to put an end to sin and death brought about by the fall for his elect. He who had no sin had come to do the will of the Father. The time had come. He was bruised, he was pierced, mocked, scorned, separated from the living, even his own father. Many times in the New Testament, the Son speaks to the Father through prayer, always starting the prayer by identifying the Father as the one he is speaking to. But in crying out on the cross, he did not say, My Father, my Father, why hast thou forsaken me? No, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Father and Son are one, but the Father is immortal, he cannot die. So he sent his one and only begotten Son to lay down his life for all the Father had given him. And for that brief set time, Christ cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As he was suffering the agony, the pain, the brutality of the eternal wrath of God, the humility, the shame of the cross, all because he was paying the penalty for our sins. Should we wonder why he would feel forsaken, feel that temporary but painful separation from the Father? But before the joy set before him, being obedient to the Father, that Lamb of God accepted his death and then was buried, and with him our sin, our guilt, the innocent dying for the guilty. So now that vindication of God over sin and death is shown complete as Christ rose up from the grave, proving that he truly was the Son of God. If he had not arose, we would still be waiting for that promised Redeemer to appear. If he hadn't come forth from out of that grave, he would not have been the one. But he did come out of the grave, and as we were figuratively buried with him, we also rose with him, free of sin, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, reconciled to the Father who art in heaven. He arose. Hallelujah, he arose. He arose the great victor, victorious over sin, over death, over the grave. We are again one with the Father, reconciled. Our sins, our transgressions, all buried as far away as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest sea to never be remembered evermore. All our sin, past, present, and future, all buried, all done away with. The victory was complete. As Christ said just before his death, it is finished. I recently read an article by John Gill where he put it this way, Sin is so finished and made an end of by Christ's satisfaction for it that it will be seen no more by the eye of avenging justice. It is so put away and out of sight that when it is sought for, it shall not be found. God, for Christ's sake, has cast it behind his back and into the depths of the sea. So, just as our text declares, being reconciled to God, we now have the righteousness of God imputed to us in Christ. 
That work of reconciliation by Christ has brought it all to its conclusion. Paul puts a capstone on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 when he proclaims, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. So, what is the way to reconciliation? I hope this message has made it clear that there is only one way through Christ. He is for us the way, the truth, and the life. He is the light of the world, our reconciliation and righteousness for all who believe. For anyone out there hearing this message who has maybe never heard it before, I implore you, be reconciled to God. How? You may ask, well, like a newborn baby, rest in the comfort of God's loving arms. He has done all the work. Come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. What do you do? You rest in him. He who sent his son to die for you, he will never let go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is a promise to all who believe. And as to that whosoever, what is the rest of the story? Again, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. The promise that God has given us in John 3.16, like all of God's promises, will not ever be broken. Guaranteed, there will be no empty chairs in in heaven. So just rest in Him. In conclusion, a few more words by the Apostle Paul from Romans 7. What a wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? Yes, who will reconcile me? Me, the hopeless one. Me, the one who can't take on the debt. Me, the one who can't pay the price. Me, the one who had spent my former life rejecting him, at enmity with him. Me, the one who was the cause of the death of his only begotten son on the cross. But, thanks be to God, he will deliver me from this body of death. He will reconcile us. Oh, that sweet harmony is restored through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be reconciled. And there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we, which we might be made the righteousness of God. Thank you.